It's our birthday! Woo! Hi guys, Press Gallery host Emma Graney here for our 250th episode of the Press Gallery. It's all very exciting. I even baked cookies. Quick reminder, as always, do subscribe so you can keep listening to us straight from your device for another 250 episodes. And if you would be so kind, do leave us our ratings on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever it is that you pick up this particular podcast. And if you have any questions, comments or concerns, do get in touch with me. You can email me egraney at postmedia.com or you can find me on Twitter at Emma L. Graney. Enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. I am your host, Provincial Affairs reporter Emma Graney. It is Friday, November 9, 2018, and this is the Robin Luff Kerfuffle, ahem, <coughs> Kerfuffle edition. <laughs> Love it. Thank you to my friend Taylor Lambert in Calgary for that uh, suggestion. Good job, Taylor. With me today, my fellow Provincial Affairs reporter, Claire Clancy. How are you, Clancy? I'm great. It's Friday. Yep. You didn't slip over on the way into work. It got damn slippery. I, yeah, man. I was thinking about that. I almost, I, like, I almost slipped several times. But freezing rain. That balance Aww. saves you. Keith Duran, the picture of health. Yeah. No. Good morning. Yeah. The the last two, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the last two podcasts, including the uh, the press gallery interview, I've uh, matched the baritone of uh, Jason Nixon, which is impressive. <laughs> so, yeah. And. Elise Stolte, our city columnist, how are you? I'm great. Excellent. Thanks. Thank you for coming us. It is, guys, our 250th episode this week. Wow. And I Happy see you brought baked goods. I did. I baked cookies <laughs> in celebration. They say 250 on them. <laughs> and they look beautiful. I they're will hand excited. them out if you behave yourselves. Uh-oh. Okay. As long as you're good little journalists. No swear words, Clancy. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you guys always have to cut those out. Yeah. <laughs> the amount of beeping I have to do over you, Claire Clancy. <laughs> Unbelievable. So today we are going to be talking, no surprises here, about Robin Luff, the NDP MLA, who decided to sit out of the legislature in protest of treatment uh, from NDP brass, and then it just kicked off and it hasn't stopped all week, so we'll get into the ins and outs of that. We're also going to talk about new rules that will govern cash in municipal and school board elections, and finally we'll talk briefly about Bill 21, the bill that came and went and came back again, and now it's yeah. gone again. Let's start off with Robin Laugh because that was the big news. It's been of, five days. It feels like I know. so much longer. Yeah. It really does. Like, that was just Monday. Oh, my gosh. So, basically, let's start off with what happened first. Uh, Robin Luff, who is the NDP MLA for Calgary East, she sent out a rather interesting press release slash open letter saying, I'm sitting out of the legislature in protest at bullying and treatment at the hands of Premier Rachel Notley and the NDP leadership, who never let me say what I want to say and have all this very tight message control and basically, I'm just I'm just not going to be in the um in the ledge anymore. She didn't want to leave caucus. She just wanted them to change their ways. She said she's been trying to raise it for like two and a half years, but nothing has ever been done about it. So she thought now's the perfect time to take a stand. So she just sent this random letter out around half past twelve on Monday afternoon. That really came out of nowhere. And from then, Monday night. She was then kicked out of the NDP caucus. So now she has her own little desk up at an independent corner out there. Clancy, 
You've been covering this. You're looking at me slightly like shell-shocked. No, I'm just thinking. I'm trying to go through the chain of events in my mind, and I just feel like every day there Yeah, because that was only else. about half of it what that happened. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that was Monday. That that was just Monday because Monday night they had the NDP caucus had a meeting. They sent out a press release at 25 to 10 at night, and I felt a disturbance in the force. I was drinking wine and reading an Agatha Christie novel at the time, and I thought, I better check my emails. And sure enough, there's an email there from NDP caucus saying, Robin Luff is out because we just can't trust her anymore. She um, upset us all, and she's shaken our faith in her, so she's out. So I tweeted about that and added added a line to a story. And so basically for the next couple of days, we've gotten reaction from various people about this, but it's worth pointing out that MLA Karen McPherson, who left the NDP um, last year to sit as an independent and then later joined the Alberta party, um, kind of for the first time uh, this week said that she had also experienced bullying within the caucus because we asked her, was that part of the reason you left? And she said, I can corroborate a lot of what Luff's concerns were. Um, So that, you know, that's kind of interesting that at this point, it looks like there are two MLAs who were in the NDP caucus who say that they felt like there was bullying happening. Yeah. Robin Luff was tough to get hold of. I'm not going to lie. Eventually, I did get hold of her on Tuesday after. It's all blurring into one. But I think it was Tuesday that I talked to her and she confirmed everything that she was saying. Keith, were you surprised the way she went around about this? Yeah. I mean, you bring up the example of Karen McPherson, right? And, and maybe having the same concerns as Robin Luff, but the, they, they handled it so differently. Really uh, They differently. really did. So Karen McPherson picked one of the approved options that you have if you're a disgruntled MLA in the back benches. And she she left the, the caucus and she went to sit as an independent, later joined another party, did not air all the dirty laundry of the party, um, kept all of that to herself. Robin Love went with a different option, which was, I'm just not going to show up. I'm not going to show up for work uh, at this point to protest. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm mad that I can't represent my constituents. So I'm going to protest that by not representing my constituents, which is essentially what, what she's doing there. That was my take on it anyway. And then she decided to air the dirty laundry. She sent out a, a second letter on Tuesday, right? Uh, where she, she made went all on a Twitter tear on Monday yeah. night, basically after being kicked out of the NDP caucus, she just went on this absolute Twitter tear against uh, House Leader Brian Mason because he got up and commented on it on Monday, and she's like, "I can show you examples of exactly what I'm talking about." They can't accuse me of lying because it is completely and utterly true. At that point, Robin Luff didn't just burn the bridges; she basically like blew them up with dynamite and pissed on the ashes, yes. like. Those bridges are well and truly gone. <laughs> they definitely are. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well done. That was a yeah. very vivid description. <laughs> I wonder also, though, the um, when I talked about this at, at home with um, people who are totally not connected to um, politics at all, the reaction I got was, well, what was she trying to bring forward? And like, there is perhaps a bigger problem here that people are elected to represent their constituents and... There are real issues out there that are not getting a hearing, perhaps, right? There's so much um, that the NDPs, well, there's very specific things the NDP are trying to focus on. And you guys have more details about this, I'm sure. But there is an issue with um, trailer parks that she was trying to bring forward. And after after this all happened, I got an email from the Edmonton Federation of Community Leagues mm-hmm. saying, hey, could you talk to these people from this trailer park? Because they're really struggling now. They've lost the person who was trying to make progress for them, and they don't know where to go. And I haven't had time to look into their details, but I talked at length with one of the people from the trailer park, and they're worried about flooding. They're worried about 
trying to get services. They're worried about rent increasing. They're worried because they can't move away from their homes and just pack up and rebuild because nobody will buy their home because they don't own the land underneath it. They right. only own the trailer park. So, And she was being, uh, she was kind of talking about the issue or trying to raise their issue in the ledge. Yeah. So I don't, I, I don't think that she went about it the right way in the end, but but at the same time, if we step back from provincial politics and say, well, how do we, fi- how does this get fixed? How does this get addressed? I think there's something else that needs to be explored. And I think we should just kind of do a quick rundown of kind of what she said her grievances were. Yes, so like, Clancy, they include- that's a great idea. <laughs> doing journalism. No. So um, they included things like um, feeling like she wasn't able to ask her own questions, write her own questions for question period in the legislature, feeling like she had to vote with the leader at all times, towing the party line. And those those things are, you know, normal political practice. Standard, within, yeah. Whether or not they should or, should or should not be exactly. is up for debate here. But and then she also standard. raised issues like, kind of, and what was kind of interesting about that second letter was it really went into these kind of fun details for journalism, but things like they were told not to be photographed with the federal NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh, when he was in Edmonton. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, I mean, again, this just escalated into an entire other thing that we'll talk about probably in a couple of minutes. But part of her letter also said that um, they were told not to bring forward um, information or not to go public with information about opposition members who may have had inappropriate behavior towards women because the NDP were not without fault. Yeah. And that was something that was in the letter. And then Emma talked to her about that. Yeah. So when I talked to Robin Luff about that, because that particular line made it seem as though maybe she had been treated badly or she knew of someone in the NDP caucus who had been treated badly. Um, so I asked her about it and she went, oh, no. And I said, do, do you know of anyone who who was mistreated or was sexually harassed in any way? And she's like, oh, in the NDP caucus. She went, what? No. Oh, no, no. That just came out of this meeting and they kind of said this and I went, huh? So it just stuck in my mind. That's why I put it in the letter. And I'm like, you know, it read like you know of something. And she went, oh, no, I don't know of anything. And I said, well, what about in the opposition parties? Do you know about anything over there? And she's like, no, no, I actually don't. She sounded surprised at the way that I'd not just me, that everyone had read that particular paragraph of the letter. But I think it speaks to the fact that that letter was just like everything she could think of that yeah. she wanted to yeah. grieve, file a grievance about. Because, you know, the fact that like writing that is problematic when you don't know the instances or you don't have evidence of potentially something like that happening. Um, but anyway, just... As an offshoot yesterday, then Premier Rachel Notley did confirm that in, since 2015, two NDP MLAs have been um, have had complaints levied against them for um, sexual misconduct outside of the workplace. Right, and they were apparently dealt with internally. Yeah. Uh, recommendations were made, some training or an education. There was a third party investigation, third like, party an, investigation. like an independent investigation. Yeah. That's yeah. right, but it didn't reach a criminal threshold. I, I believe is what uh, what they've said. Uh, now everybody, of course, is wondering who these MLAs are. So some of the issues that Luff brought up about having scripted questions and answers, uh, having her member statements edited, having to vote along party lines on every single vote, these are legitimate issues. And in fact, I had a really good conversation with Richard Starkey, another independent MLA, 
uh, that you will hear next week if you turn into the uh, the press gallery interview. Uh, Which shameless, you shameless. totally should do. Uh, They're so right. good. All the interviews are wonderful. Yes, well sh- done. I'm this proud a shameless of you. plug there. Yes, it was very interesting. <laughs> very interesting conversation with him about this very thing and and the the impact on democracy. And the problem is that this is not the only government that does this. All governments in Canada have been doing this. You know, scripted questions and answers, staying on message, not giving the opposition any kind of ammunition or or any kind of help most of the time, not accepting their amendments, although they did uh, with Bill uh, 21. Which we'll get to later in this episode. Which we will get to. So I understand her concerns, right? Uh, But they're not really out of the norm from other governments. I think the NDP is maybe taking it a little too far by bringing scripted questions and answers even into committee meetings. That seems a bit excessive to me. That's definitely something that I'd noticed. Yeah. So I I agree with her on that. But... um, then she went further and started just, as you say, blowing up these bridges between her and the party and airing all the dirty laundry. Um, you know, it is, it, is a, it is a real conundrum for a party leadership. What do you do with someone who is disgruntled? You can't give them their way. You can't let them necessarily go off script. But at the same time, you risk then exactly what happened. Cracking a laugh. I'm going to use it as a verb now. <laughs> a luffing? A luffing. A luffing. Um, yeah. I think what's really interesting is that um, seeing Premier Rachel Notley respond to this in question period on Tuesday as well. Right. Because the accusations had just come out. And I think maybe the NDP, obviously, this has been an internal issue for them. But I wonder, I think the optics were really interesting this week where we had basically an MLA come out and say she's being bullied. A few hours later, she's kicked out of caucus. And then the next day in question period, when the premier was asked about it, she said, um, basically praised the NDP caucus, said, I'm so proud of my team. Oh, and then they all got up and, and cheered themselves all clapped, and bumped their desks. Which was they a, gave themselves yeah. a standing ovation, like, just sit down, guys. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> sit down. And, and then later on in the week, you know, multiple MLAs came back to saying, like, you know, and the premier said herself then yesterday... Um, that Robin Luff's grievances had no foundation. Graham Sucha had said that her claims were unfounded. And, like, I just think, you know, questions that we were asking were, like, are you guys reviewing this? Do you think potentially there was something missed here? What's going on? And so for a government that keeps standing up saying, like, we fight against bullying, harassment, those responses I thought were really fascinating to watch. One of the other points in her letter was that this is all happening because she's not running again. So it's MLAs who are running again who are getting all of the attention in the spotlight shot on them. So I grabbed Michael Connolly on the way into uh, into the house. So he's he's a Calgary Hawkwood MLA. He's not running in 2019. I stopped him and said, hey, so you're kind of in a similar boat. You're a Calgary MLA. You're not running again. Do you feel how Robin Luff feels? And he went, no, not at all. Absolutely not. I mean, again, they've been given a line to give to the media over all of this. And I was like, well, how did it make you feel to vote to throw her out of caucus. Like, you've just tossed her out. And he said, no, that was a really, really tough decision. It was really, really hard. But I was personally hurt by what she said. And I don't feel that way at all. I got a member's statement just last week, for instance. But further to your point, Keith, about this being a fairly normal practice, not just among governments, but among opposition parties too. Mm-hmm. So we saw this yesterday, Prab Gill. Yep, just gifts just, kept on giving. Just keeps on going, guys. <laughs> so yesterday, Prab Gill, who's the... Um, who is the MLA for Calgary Greenway. He was elected in a by-election under the PC banner. Then he became a very enthusiastic supporter of conservative unity, became part of the UCP. But then he was kicked out of the UCP caucus because of questions around ballot box stuffing at his constituency association's AGM. So he's now sitting in... um, 
independent corner as well. It's getting kind it, of it's getting, tight down there. It is. It's getting, <laughs> there's a lot of company for everyone down party. there now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he got up in question period yesterday and said, just basically said, you know what? I was whipped during the Bill 9 um, vote and debate. You must might remember that is the abortion bubble zone bill that um, had these kind of protest-free zones around abortion clinics. And he said, I wasn't allowed to speak my mind. Independent thought was not allowed. And we were whipped and bullied in our own party. So is the government just as bad just as tight on message control as the Tories are. And then the House was in uproar. And it was a fiery speech. It was. It was very fiery. And I tried to follow up with him, but um, I couldn't get hold of him yesterday. I did write a story anyway about it. Jason Nixon, who is the UCP House leader, said it's absolutely ridiculous. That's the word he used. And said it's a case of sour grapes. Again, direct quote. Sometimes I use them. And uh, basically said it was just sour grapes. It's ridiculous. Prab Gill was deputy whip at the time. So how could he possibly be whip- whipping himself in? into his own vote and they had a unanimous agreement on Bill 9. So that was just an interesting little development there yesterday as well. And it just talks about message control in all parties and kind of it's going to get tighter leading up to the election. Although the Alberta party are loving this. They're like, well, we don't don't have this kind of problem. It's easier with such (laughs) a small caucus. (laughs) There is only three, y'all. And just going back to Elise's point um, about the constituents, though, I think it's really, it also does raise a lot of questions about, you know, we have this... We have an MLA now who's not sitting in the house, who's protesting. She's facing financial penalties for that for yeah, not hundred bucks work. a day. Yeah, and but I do think you know that is um, it does mean that there are people there now without any representation at all. So yeah, and I do feel for her in some way. I mean, you you bring up the Calgary MLAs; they are facing really long odds to get reelected if yep. they're an NDP MLA in Calgary, and so I could sense her frustration. You know, she's probably getting hammered at the doorsteps uh, from constituents. And she is, you know, feels blocked to advocate, to do anything, right? She may have a very legitimate issue with the, with the trailer park uh, the trailer park issue that Elise brought up there. And she can't do anything about it. So I, I understand her feeling frustrated, but the way she reacted to it may just not have been all that productive. And now it seems to have created this chain reaction <laughs> that uh, may go on for a while yet. We'll see. I want to switch over to something, Elise, I know you were keeping your eye on back in your days as the uh, City Hall reporter there. The NDP has brought in a bill that, similar to the financial controls around provincial elections, makes some new rules for um, municipal and school board elections. Uh, Do you want to talk us through that? Sure. It's something that uh, I think it was kind of... I mean, it wasn't super big news when it came out, but I think that's just because people have been expecting this for so long. They were really hoping it would have come in before the last election because council um, voted to endorse this move to get developer and union dollars out of the election. Um, It's a big deal because developer dollars do play a huge role in in elections. Back in July, we looked at the biggest donors to um, the municipal election campaigns. Um, The developers definitely give a lot to all the incumbents and to anybody who's pro-development. The unions also do. The unions were the biggest donors when we took a look at the list. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's interesting to see because you'll talk to the the councillors and they always say, oh, no, this doesn't affect my vote. And legitimately, they have disclosure statements. We know exactly who gave them the money. And they have all these debates about rezonings in public. So there is transparency there, but it's also... You have a developer. They come before you. Um, we looked at one case where, like, Regency was coming to ask for a rezoning. And when they faced that council, seven out of the 13 people had gotten major donations from them. So it raises questions for the, the yeah. residents who are there arguing their case. If they don't feel confident in it, well, that, that 
kind of hurts democracy, right? So it, it is a big deal. But of course, the other side to this is, is it actually going to make a difference, right? So you can't give as a developer, but you can still give as an individual, yeah. right? So it's not Regency giving, but it's Raj Dunnick giving. Like, is that really going to make a difference? I don't know. And it might have even less transparency because when we look at the disclosure statements, we're going to have to actually think, okay, who does that person work for again, right? Right. So we'll see. One of the bits in this law too. Um, so if, for example, uh, I work for a development firm and I give $4,000, which is the new maximum, to Don Iverson, that firm can't turn around and then reimburse me the $4,000. Right. Yeah. Because apparently in Quebec, this was a bit of a problem of people trying to skirt these laws by doing this. So that's actually written into the laws. How you police that? I don't know how you police that. Oh, look, you suddenly got some Oilers tickets. Yeah, isn't yeah, that or nice? Or a Christmas like, a bonus. Great... Yeah, yes, exactly. you're a great worker. I work really hard, okay? I deserve that Christmas bonus. <laughs> <laughs> and so for this bill, though, why, um, like, what was the impetus for bringing in these new rules? Was there, what were there previous cases where there were massive conflicts of interests and then, you know, complaints made against them? No, I think it was more they had made these changes at the provincial level. They made the changes at the federal level. Um, at the municipal level, the case was even more clear because you have this like direct link between the people who are giving the money and the people who are asking for changes in the law. Shay Anderson, the municipal affairs minister, spoke to this bill. Obviously, it was his bill. He want to hope he spoke about it. The big donations from developers, that's only a problem in Calgary and Edmonton. Small municipalities don't face that at all. What the bill also does, it brings down maximum donations from 5000 to $4,000. But it used to be the case, I didn't realize this, that you could give $5,000 to every single candidate in the province if that tickled your fancy. Now you can give a total of $4,000 in the entire province. So that's a big change as well. It means you can't just go throwing cash willy-nilly at a bunch of candidates who may be a kind of like perhaps there's like a block of conservative candidates or perhaps there's a block of like union candidates. You can only give $4,000 in total now across the whole province. It also spills over to school board elections, similar thing there. So again, top of $4,000. There are are going to be spending limits. They haven't decided on them yet. They're going to be done in regulations. But again, that pulls it back into kind of similar to the provincial laws. Was it ever a problem that you saw in municipal elections that people were just real cash moneying it and just like... I'm I'm doing the cash thing right now, you know where you <laughs> Um it's definitely the incumbents spend a lot more. And um yeah. the amount spent on elections has been going up and up and up over the years. So people that has been a big argument that if you can bring down the spending then it will be easier for people who are just coming new into politics to compete. Um but the argument against that is that you need some money, some basic money to get your message out there and if the point of an election is to have an informed debate there needs to be some money in order to fund that more public debate. One of the really interesting parts of this bill, actually speaking of the incumbents favouring them or not, the campaign period used to be basically four years. So you get elected and then you decide you're going to run in the next election too and you just start getting donations. You build up your war chest for the entire period. That's changed now. So as soon as the, as soon as the bill was tabled, no one can have any more donations right now until... Um, January 1st of the year of the next election. So the idea there is that incumbents can't sit there as a councillor and say, yeah, I'm your council. What, what? Give us some money. It's going to be so weak because I'm going to run in 2021 as well. So it, it changes that for them as well. Do you think that that's going to favour incumbents or new councillors? Oh, I think that favours new councillors because yeah. you have last election, you had incumbents that were fundraising for, they would just have Years. different fundraising yeah, events, yeah. Um, luncheons. 
It gives people people who want to meet them, it, they can pay for FaceTime, I guess, and have discussions. But so that will change for some counselors, but other counselors definitely weren't weren't fundraising until they had filed their papers, and that was much closer to the uh, to the election. I think that is actually one of the big questions of this bill: is you know, will it favor incumbents or not? Uh, the totality of it. Um, because at the municipal level, it, incumbents are really, really hard to defeat, right? We've seen like 90%, 95% incumbents get back in most of the time at the municipal level. So if this does help to level the playing field a bit, I think that's that's a good thing. The This does put the municipalities on par mostly with the province, except for one thing, and Don Iveson raised this, which is that uh, people making donations to a municipal candidate still don't get a tax receipt, yeah, yeah. right? So that is, that's an, an interesting change that they didn't make in this bill. Part of it is because the city doesn't charge income tax, and so the city would it's the province that would have to yeah. reimburse, right? Right. It seems like any, a financial any, decision any, then for any the tax province. receipt. Yeah. But it is just funny sense. to have sort of two two levels on kind of different uh, different uh, rules. But on that, Keith, we asked officials about it in the technical briefing, and they said exactly right. It's going to cost the province too much at this point. It's not off the table completely. It's just that Alberta can't afford to do that right now. So that's why they elected not to take that step. Right. And I'm sure it burns the cities because they always help. You know, they are constantly <laughs> fighting. Like we are legitimate. We're just as important as all the other orders of government, not levels, orders of government. So I imagine they're not very happy. I guess we'll see how that works in 2021. And just very, very briefly, I do want to talk about Bill 21 because it just was kind of unusual what happened with the backflip of this bill. Everybody wanted a say over amending that bill. Goodness gracious, didn't they, though? So, Bill 21... um, Clancy, you covered originally. Talk us sure, yeah. So uh, basically, Bill Twenty One brings in. Um, we talked about it last week on the podcast briefly too. I think um, brings in rules that will create different degrees of licensing suspension um, for doctors or other healthcare providers who are found to have sexually abused um, or accused of sexually abused or sexual misconduct with patients. It covers a whole range of different acts, everything from voyeurism to sexual assault. Um, but basically, the College of Physicians and Surgeons had said that they their hands were kind of tied in terms of being able to take away licenses. And this kind of fixed that issue and meant that um, if a doctor, for example, was accused of a sexual assault and found through an investigation uh, through the college to have committed the, the act or whatever, the college can now, under this legislation, could have taken away the license for five years before they had even a chance of reapplying for it later. Yeah. Now, the idea behind that was that they um, there's only one other province with laws like this on their books, and that's Ontario. They have the, the five-year minimum as well. And that was a real sticking point. First off, Karen McPherson from the Alberta Party got up and tried to amend the bill so that it would be a lifetime ban. That amendment was voted down. Then the UCP got up and they also tried to amend the bill so it would be a lifetime ban. And again, that amendment was voted down by the NDP as their majority government. So then it went to third reading, which basically meant it's done and now it's just got to get royal assent. But then... Yesterday, a very interesting thing happened. The NDP government turned around and said, you know what, actually, we've like been talking to some people um, and we should maybe do that lifetime ban thing. Actually, that'd be good. Yeah, so we're just going to bring this bill back uh, to Committee of the Whole, which means they debate it again and just, you know, do these amendments. And uh, yeah, so cool, 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 cool. The UCP and Alberta Party were understandably miffed, uh, saying, (laughs) dudes, this is literally what we asked you to do. 
anyway, the amendment was passed. And so now <laughs> there's basically a lifetime ban for doctors or healthcare professionals who are found guilty of sexual abuse. It was fun on Twitter to see parties being, all par- all opposition parties being like, we mentioned this amendment. This is what we wanted. Yeah, to the see. UCP tried to claim, <laughs> yeah. uh, tried to claim it. Yeah. And then the Alberta party was having none of that and put out their own yeah. press release saying, yeah, we did this first, guys. It was it was an interesting process, and I guess good that they all worked together in the end. It's great that they finally end. did it. Good and job. Worked, <laughs> worked together Working in the together end. is an interesting yeah, phrase for that one. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the NDP admitted maybe that they hadn't got it right. It's It was, it was fascinating, though. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, a doctor or a health professional who sexually abuses a patient, it's a horrible thing. It's an absolutely horrible thing. It's a, a terrible violation of privacy, and there should be strong deterrence to prevent that from happening. Um, this all started because of a case of a doctor here in Edmonton who was uh, convicted of two sexual assaults and was allowed to practice again after uh, after a period of suspension. And there is a clear uh, sentiment out there that that shouldn't happen anymore. I, I do, I worry a little bit um, that I, I hope everyone's motives are, are good here and it's not just a kind of race to the bottom to prove who's tougher, you know, who's tougher on, on criminals and sexual abusers. I, th- there was a little whiff of that, uh, that it just sort of a competition to, you know, to see who was, who was going to come up with the this most severe punishments here. Cause there's a real question whether this law is actually going to stand up in court. Exactly. Right. Is the appeal court going to say, no, this punishment is out of line with case law in, in, uh, in Canada. I, I, you know, it's a weird process. We're going to put it in. We're going to try it. That's that's now the attitude of this legislature. But it the first case that comes up, it may be defeated and they're going to have to go back to the drawing board. And the thing is, there is no case law on this because, again, Alberta's following Ontario, which only just recently brought something in and has a five-year ban. There is no such thing as a lifetime ban anywhere else in Canada. So... The first case that does come before the courts is going to be a very interesting one because it's going to be precedent setting and it's going to basically spell out whether or not this amendment was the right thing to do or not. But Sarah Hoffman, the health minister, said yesterday when I asked her about it that, yeah, they went through the bill, but then they talked to some um, support organizations for sexual abuse survivors and they were the ones who were like, hey, actually, can we can we up it to, a, to the lifetime ban, which was why they decided to go back to the table and, and do that. So you're right, Keith. Once the first uh, case comes through, and you know it will, then we'll see whether or not this does stand up in court. Okay, let's move on to our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery, in which we recommend things we have seen or read or listened to lately that we think you might also enjoy, dear listeners. Clancy, do you want to kick us off, mate? Sure, yeah. I'm going to recommend a podcast that no. is amazing. Shocking. <laughs> yeah. Shocking, it's, um, It's really fascinating, and I'm on episode two. It's kind of coming out week by week, and I would really recommend this. It's called Unerased, and it's about a history of conversion therapy in the United States. Oh. Um, and it's really fascinating. Um, the first episode talks to someone who 14 years ago in his early 20s went through conversion therapy, um, and then the episode this morning that I listened to, Walking here is about a group of ultra right wing conservative mothers who find out that their children are gay and then band together and start to start to lean left and start to get rid of some of their preconceived notions because they love their kids and they want um, it actually made me a bit teary eyed. It was like really a beautiful, yeah. uh, beautiful episode about these people trying to come to terms with religion and the fact that their children are gay as well. So really great, um, really great podcast. And yeah, there'll be a link to it. Sounds great. Keith. 
Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, uh, the next Press Gallery interview ne- coming out next week is with Richard Starkey. There's another shameless <laughs> plug. Um, that's two. That's real, two. That's very good. So the reason, one of the reasons we had him on, uh, because we really wanted to talk about this Robin Luff stuff and uh, what, uh, you know, the, the, the impact of hyper-partisanship. And Richard Starkey, I didn't know this, maybe you did, last year for the Canadian Parliamentary Review, he wrote an article uh, called... The Rise of Partisanship and How It Paralyzes Parliaments. And he talks about his experiences in both as a cabinet minister and in opposition in caucus. Uh, some of the things about what happened when he tried to support an opposition amendment and what happened when uh, he was coached to answer questions in question period and so on. Uh, really kind of personal look at it, but also a, a kind of uh, a deeper dive into how this really affects democracy and how people are not being represented when you allow this kind of hyperpartisanship to occur and, and what potentially could happen if we head down the path that the the United States, for example, is, is having right now. So very interesting article, not a long article, but definitely worth a read. I'm going to take us back to Australia again because I read something incredibly funny this week. I tweeted it out. It was a it was an exchange between a journalist and the prime minister about a bus tour that he's on. And whether why Yeah, that was amazing. It was so funny. Oh, that was good. It yeah. read like satire, but it was not satire. What I'm gonna recommend though is something that it reminded me of, which is a series of Australian political comedy sketches. It's Clark and Daw. They're these two comedians and one of them would always be the politician who was pretending to be the Prime Minister or whoever, just speaking absolute nonsense and the other guy was the journalist asking him these questions and it read exactly like that actual real exchange between the ABC journalist and the Prime Minister. So I'm going to put a link. Emma introduced me to this the first time yesterday and it was amazing. Yeah, yeah. they're fantastic. So I'm going to put up a couple of links to Clark and Daw sketches because they are absolutely wonderful and hilarious and if you watch if you follow politics at all which you probably do if you listen to the press gallery you will really really find them funny Elise this one's not funny sorry no that's uh, okay (laughs) (laughs) this one is um it's one that just it's from the walrus and it's one that stuck with me I I actually referenced it in the column I wrote today on um, responding to to hate and discrimination but it's called even radical extremists deserve a second chance um, and it's about this Montreal group that works with people um, of any, like, it doesn't matter what type of extremism they, they espouse. Um, they see something common in all of those. Um, and they, they're called the Center for the Prevention of Radicalization Leading to Violence. And they work by um, identifying these individuals and trying to offer emotional support and build trust with them and then help them walk through what happened to them? So in one case, one anecdote that they store, they share in here, it was through writing, um, they got a couple of people together and they wrote a comic book using allegory to explain why they had espoused these new, these oh, views wow. and what happened to them. And yeah, it was really cool because through that process, they were able to explain that they weren't, they weren't monsters. They were regular teens who made some really bad choices and kind of got stuck in it. Um, and that, that, that sounds so interesting. It's really cool. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So the link will be there if you want to read it. Fantastic. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. Claire Clancy, Keith Durine, Elise Stolte. I said your whole name that I time, know. Claire. Thank you. That's so welcome. Good. I used your first name. Yeah. So wow. rare. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, it is our 20... No, it's not. It is our... <laughs> it is our 250th birthday. You guys are looking so well. And you get cookies for being so well behaved on this episode. Once again, do subscribe so you can get all the latest episodes right to your device, including an upcoming interview with uh, Richard Starkey, the 
progressive conservative uh, MLA. And join us again this time next week for more Press Gallery.